Well, good morning again. You guys can open your Bibles to the uh, book of Genesis, first couple pages. We'll kind of be in chapter two, chapter three, and we'll kind of launch from there uh, this morning. Uh, this week, Pastor Adam, one of our pastors here, uh, you know Adam uh, and myself, we're just getting back from a trip where we were in Turkey for about eight, nine days, and we were over there uh, getting the opportunity to, to lead a small conference uh, of missionaries from all over the world. Uh, that were kind of gathered there. So we got to uh, lead worship with them and kind of uh, share hearts some devotions with them and just encourage them and as well as hear their stories. Great, awesome time together. And then after that, us and some of them were able to see some different biblical sites uh, in what is now modern day Turkey. Lots of biblical sites and places that uh, the disciples would have went and written letters to. It was awesome. Uh, so I'm figuring out this jet lag thing, which I always thought was just hearsay, but it is very real. But over there, uh, it, it was a blast. Uh, they have a thing called Turkish coffee. And if you, I Google it, I don't like coffee, but apparently it is, it's very strong. It's very strong. And part of our world travels this, this last week was, um, I, I got sick for maybe the first time in this fashion, uh, since I was a child. And so almost our whole team at one point or another got sick. I don't know if it was the water or what it was, but we kind of got sick. And so it knocked me out. Uh, I missed a couple sites and it was rough. And and a couple days later, we were on this bus kind of going from place to place. Uh, and, and then the sickness, the bug caught Pastor Adam. And so I texted Pastor Adam one uh, morning. I'm like, you coming to breakfast? And he's like, it got me, right? And, it got me. and so we're, you know, you're trying to make the best of this thing. No one's hungry. We both probably lost weight on this trip. But we, uh, one, one morning, we're, we're on this bus. And there's one of our tour guides was this, this Turkish woman. And she was, she was awesome. She was great. They were very knowledgeable. They're from Turkey. And she was... She was great, and she knew that several people on the bus had gotten sick. And so we had stopped to see uh, kind of some ruins of an old church, got back on the bus, and she had this plastic bag with her. And this, this spoon that, I mean, this was almost the size of a ladle. It was this giant spoon. And she's like, she says, this is grandma's recipe. <laughs> and she, I was over it by this time. Pastor Adam, she knew was sick. She walks up to him, almost like she's going to spoon feed him with this giant, this giant spoon of, of grandma's secret recipe that's supposed to calm your stomach. Well, what grandma's secret recipe was, was just straight up, finely ground Turkish coffee. <laughs> And so Adam was trying to be a good, uh, you know, visitor to the country. And I don't remember if she spoon fed it to him or if he took the spoon and did it himself. And she goes, you need to take it quickly with water. And so he has this giant spoon full of ground up Turkish coffee. And he's just, he has it in his mouth and I'm behind him. And he has this mouthful of powdered Turkish coffee. And I'm like, Adam, how is it? <laughs> this, this plume of dust comes out of his mouth and he says, it's a little rough. It's a little rough. And so I put my headphones back in and I kind of go back to whatever I was doing. And a minute later, I look up and this, this Turkish coffee didn't stay in the stomach of Adam very long. It didn't stay in the stomach of Adam very long. But it was this amazing trip that we, that we got to be a part of and it was awesome. And, and it just it reminded me a lot of the conversations we had with missionaries and some of the things we talked about with the series that we are in. We have been going through a series called The Truth About Lies. And what we have been looking at, what we kind of have keep, kept kind of swimming back to and looking at both, we see this all through the New Testament and the scriptures, as well as the, the historic uh, church, that we see the three enemies of the soul are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And what we've been saying is this, kind of the way that plays out. When we talk about spiritual warfare, sometimes we think about demons and Halloween and horror movies and, I don't know, weird hokey pokey things like that. But when we look at the, the scriptures, it points us that the devil the devil, the devil breathes lies. 
that the devil breeds lies that play to our flesh. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. That plays to our flesh, that plays to our already sinful self-centered desires. And these things get normalized in a secular world, in a, in a culture that's centered on itself. Pastor Jonathan led us through this last week. And the scriptures tell us that the world is under the influence of the evil one, of the devil. And we kind of see this thing that perpetuates. And we were in Turkey, we were kind of sitting down with the missionaries and, and they were answering a question. I forget exactly what the question was, but something to the extent of what is kind of the main uh, moral challenge that you see in the area that you're serving. And these people were from all over the world. And it was interesting. Someone was serving kind of in some different uh, Middle Eastern countries that, that have some different cultures and different things like that. And they said, one of the things that they see show up is, is a certain uh, authority and harshness and control in, in certain aspects of the life that they were in. And they saw how that was kind of, that the devil would lie and kind of play to those uh, tendencies and that would get normalized in the culture, right? As we think about our culture, it's very easy to think about how the devil sows lies to our flesh that get normalized in Western culture, all kinds of things, right? Another missionary uh, spent some time uh, in a Southeast Asian country that, that, just sexual stuff is rampant. She said the idea that two people would get married and that their bodies are holy and that they would they would see themselves as like wanting to say sexually pure, not just from like this lust standpoint, but from their experiences growing up, that it was so pervasive that sexuality and the holiness of their body just almost didn't matter at all because that was and that got normalized in the world because the lies Satan played to that culture. So it's so interesting to hear these different cultures and maybe the lies that specifically get played to those cultures because we can be aware of our own, right? But what we want to do for the next three weeks is we're almost having a, a, a series inside of a series. We, we want to do a, a case study of the original lies of Satan and see how these things play to our flesh and get normalized in the world, right? It's, it, it's so important if you think about the Genesis, Genesis 1, 2, 3... We, that we, we go back, we go back to this passage to give us understanding in so many things. The heart of God, the nature of the fall, the lies of Satan, how we are created in God's image, all these things we go back to. It's almost if you think about therapy or history that we go back to gain understanding for now, right? And so we want to look at, at the original lies that Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden and see how that plays out. And this only doesn't give us give us understanding for today, but, but going back to Genesis 2-3 gives patterns and reference points in context for the rest of the story of the scripture. And so we are going to jump right in today. Uh, Genesis 2 is where we'll start. Genesis 2, verse 8, and then we're going to jump to, to 15. Uh, it says this. God is creating everything. He created man and woman. He creates man. And he says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then jump to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'd underline what that tree is, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He said, When you eat from it, you will certainly die. And let's jump to Genesis 3. This is the, the fall of man, temptation. Now the serpent, this is, this is the devil, was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, this is, look at these three things he says we're going to unpack. He says, did God really say you must not eat from, the tr from any tree in the garden? 
Look how he just starts to distort that. Did God say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? God never said that. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the gardens, but God did say you must not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. Then she says, and you must not touch it or you will die. God never said you can't touch it. He said, if you eat from this, you will die. And then look what Satan says, verse four. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw, here we're jumping to six. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, you can kind of see the flesh getting played to there. She took it and ate it. She also gave some of it to her husband who was with her. He ate it. The eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. That we go back, we kind of want to excavate this passage so that we can make sense of how these lies of Satan play today. There's three things Satan says in there. He says, you surely won't die if you eat from this. He said, your eyes will open. You will be like God. We're going to look at those the next couple weeks. But what we want to look at today is when he looks to Adam and Eve and says, did God really say, did, did, did God really say that? That it's not this lie, but it's, it's this deception of the nature and the character of God. That Satan, in saying this, did God, whoa, 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 did God really say that? That he's inferring that, that God is holding out on us. Why would God say such a thing? He said, he said what? It stirs this question in the human heart, in the heart of Adam and Eve, that maybe God isn't who he claims to be. That God created man and woman in his image, walking with him in the garden, has made them to reflect his glory and his goodness and his love, that he is in perfect relationship with them. That up until this point, they didn't think about the Don't eat that tree. Okay, we are walking with you, Lord. We are good. Until, until this lie came along and said, he said, don't eat from that tree. And all of a sudden you can see the, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess he, I guess he did. Why do you, why? Why do you say that? You can almost see Satan like, oh, hmm, that's weird. And it stirs this question that maybe God is holding out. Maybe he's not who he claims to be. Maybe there's something that he doesn't want us to know that we need to know. David Tackle, who wrote a book called The Truth About Lies, says this. This is the most foundational level at which we all have been deceived. To one extent or another, we all hold distorted images of God. We fear his disapproval. We do not trust him with our futures. We doubt his love and we run away from him when we have failed. God, for most of us, is either too distant, too disappointed, or too uncaring. That there's this deception takes root in our heart that maybe, maybe God isn't who he says he is. And it creates this distortion of our understanding of God. And we, we see this pattern played out through the rest of scripture and throughout the rest of the history of the world, Right? You see Abraham and Sarah, God makes this promise to Abraham and Sarah that, that you are going to have this descendant, that all nations are going to come. And as time goes on and they're waiting and they're kind, of, they're kind of starting to feel like God's being silent, they take things into their own hands and they're like, did God really say, maybe we should just do this ourselves. Or we see God promises Israel the promised land, right? And he's going to deliver them into the promised land, this, this, this home for them that's going to be a light to all nations. And and they get there and there's these intimidating characters in there. I'm like, oh man, did God really say that we're supposed to go take care of this business? Like, I don't know, right? And they complain. And we see that even as Israel's established and they, they want a king like all the other nations. And they're like, did God say he's going to protect us? That he's going to lead us? We want a king like the other nations. Did he really say that this is how it's going to go? 
think God gives the Israelites his law to reveal his heart and to operate as this king that'll be a light to the nations. And they constantly follow other gods and other ways of life and other practices. And the question is, is, is God's way really the right way? Is it really successful? Is it really going to lead to life and to victory and all these things that the question played out through scripture and through our own lives? Is that deception, that distortion, that lie? Did God really say? I love this. Uh, Uncle Tim Keller here says, what we see is the fall of the human race starts not with an action, but with an attitude. That I would write that down, that the fall, the deception does not start with an action, but an attitude. Not with an act, but with a sneer. The word translated really, did God really say, shows that the serpent is not simply denying what God said. He's mocking what God said. He's not saying God didn't say it. He's saying it's ridiculous, that it's laughable. He's trying to get Adam and Eve to laugh at it. He's trying to change their attitudes towards it. Therefore, the fall of the human race starts not with an action or even with a thought, but with an attitude of the heart. And today, that's what I want us to look at is the attitude of our heart that believes that lie that plays to our flesh that gets normalized in our culture and in our church in a lot of different ways. You can uh, write this this way today. That that lie of Satan, did God really say, that lie of Satan, it breeds this skepticism in us. It breeds this attitude of the heart that is skeptical of God, that keeps God at arm's length. And it breeds this within our, our heart. Skepticism is almost this doubt to the truthfulness of something. The original Greek word uh, was the skeptikos. It, it was of an inquirer, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, obviously. But it's interesting, it says someone who was unsatisfied, someone still looking for truth. If you were skeptical, you were unsatisfied with something, right? Which is an attitude of the heart to not be satisfied, to be still searching for something and not be at peace, right? Many of us are skeptical about all kinds of things, right? You read a fake news story, we have shattered expectations, we've walked through harsh realities, we have failed leaders, someone's tried to sell us pyramid schemes and everything in between, right? That we can just be skeptical. If someone tries to sell us something, a, a deal on a car or whatever, if someone tries to sell us something, if it's too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true, right? Because we're skeptical. Our experiences in the world around us leads to be skeptical about all kinds of things, right? And, and for some of us, I, I don't know where you're at uh, this morning, this afternoon when you're watching this, but for some of us, this can take a very straightforward uh, meaning regarding, regarding the things of God and of faith, Right? There's almost this active uh, or almost like intellectual skepticism, right? This active skepticism that we, we're aware that we're, and I, I, I can tend to be this way with a lot of things myself. I don't know if you're this way, that you just, you kind of seem to question a lot of things, right? You kind of are always like, yeah, that's true. But what about this thing, right? There's almost this active skepticism and you're not sure about this whole faith thing. Maybe you hear about talking snakes and resurrecting Jewish men and objective morality and truth. And you're just like, I don't, I don't know about this. I feel skeptical towards this, right? Maybe you've witnessed or even experienced the, the bad end of Christianity, the bad end of faith. And, and it's important, it's so important to note that many of these questions are important to wrestle through. For some of us, we don't ever ask these questions or wrestle through them, right? But for some of us, it's important to, to be an inquirer, to kind of navigate some things. But for some of us, when we talk about faith, that did God really say, it's very easy to have this, this kind of straight out attitude that we're like, I don't, I don't want any piece of this. I don't trust any of this. I heard someone talk about there almost can be this sense of, of a magic trick, right? <laughs> Recently, my wife and I were watching David Blaine and we're like, this is insane, right? I haven't watched magic in a long time. But, but the way a magic trick works, 
as far as my understanding of magic goes, is that that the magician gets gets someone to kind of stand in a certain place or do a certain thing or get their eyes to look at a certain thing so that they can create an illusion, right? Like these magic tricks are, are illusions, right? So if you can get someone to get their eyes here while you do something, or if you get them to stand in a certain place, you can create an illusion. And you may be skeptical because of your experience, and this can be what happens a lot of time in faith. If you pray this prayer, if you just have enough faith, if you do A, B, and C, if you just stand right here and look at this way and ignore these passages or ignore these people or this reality and just look right here and just, you can see this illusion of, of faith. And for some of you, you're skeptical because you've kind of stepped out of that illusion. You're like, hold on, there's a whole bunch of other pieces of this. And I would say this, that I believe the scriptures, the history of the church, the best leaders that and thoughts, thought leaders that we've had throughout church history, they allow us to take a look from every angle. The, to, to come and look at this thing, look at the faith, look at Christ, look at his promises, look at our current world from every angle so that you might see the real thing, warts and all, that you might see the highlights in the lowlights, that you might see the beauty of this whole thing, that you might ultimately see Christ in the midst of everything, that you might see the real thing, that this is not an illusion. You may be in that boat where you are skeptical of this whole thing, but for others of us, you, you would, may, wouldn't say you're skeptical. Maybe you think of someone that comes to mind that, oh, they're a skeptic when it comes to faith, and I've seen skepticism in their own heart, but not me. I have no problem believing these things. But I would challenge you. I would call you to maybe ask yourself. We maybe aren't active skeptics, but we're passive skeptics, right? That we say we have faith, that we trust Jesus. We believe that he is the way and the truth and the life. But practically, practically in our day-to-day, we are doubling down on the hope of a politician, of a savings account number, of a life philosophy based on some book we read or personality that we just watch what they do. Or sometimes it's just our own gut. And we're skeptical of the way of Jesus because practically what we're putting our faith in is these things that we have decided, right? That we smile, we nod, we wink an eye to what Jesus calls us to. But if we are honest, we are skeptical that the way of Jesus actually matters, that it's true, that it actually works, and that it's the best way for me to live and to truly give my life to. That we may not be actively skeptical in our minds, but we're practically skeptical in the way that we live, trusting that Jesus is enough, that he is true, and that his way is good and right and beautiful. And for whatever camp you're in, active or passive skepticism, that what happens is when this, this, the, the lies of Satan breed skepticism in our heart that we become skeptical of multiple things. We become skeptical of God's truth, right? When, the, when Satan says, did God really say? Like he's kind of causing this, this skepticism in our heart of, of questioning, is, is, God, is God's word true? Did what he say, is that, is that right? And this plays out in a lot of, of obvi- very obvious ways today. Like in kind of this Western uh, secular culture where the individual is the authority and religion is outdated and it's, it's uh, harm to culture. When we in that bubble, in that world that we live in, which is not where everybody in the world lives in, that is so worth making a note of. We think that the way that we feel about things is the way the entire world feels about things. But my friends, religion in many different forms is, is pervasive all through the world. So in our context... In our world, we struggle with these things, right? And we, we, we see this play out. Did God really say that there's this, this sexual ethic that he has to, that, that following him calls us to? Is, is, there, is there really like this? That feels a little old school, right? 
Is this actually like this old ancient book with outdated information? Like we're actually supposed to believe this? Like did God really say that this is how we're supposed to follow things? Feels outdated, right? Did God really say there's like this objective standard of truth? Come on, dude, it's 2022. Like what is right for you? What makes sense for you? And to have this objective truth feels a little domineering, right? It's making me feel a little unsettled. You're telling me, did God really say that, that hell is real? That the devil is real? That he, Jesus is the only way? Like, come on, dude. What year is it? 1940? Like, this doesn't make any sense. And we, we, we see this all over the place, right? That, that we become skeptical of God's truth and we're like, did God really say? Plays out in a lot of obvious ways. That whether it sounds limited or outdated, the fact that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, it doesn't land well in our, it doesn't jibe well with our world that we find ourselves in, our kind of cultural moment, right? hasn't always been the case. But but what I want you to think about today, you may be here and you may be like, yeah, I struggle with some of those things, but I don't know. It's fine. But for some of us, this, this did God really say, it isn't just these big things, but it plays out in these small, these small lies that take root in our heart that almost don't, we almost don't pay much attention to. And did God really say, actually shows up, now, did God really mean, did God really mean that? Did God, did God really mean that I'm supposed to take up my cross and die to myself? Like, did he, he didn't really mean that. I'm like, what? Did he really say that in order to find our lives, we have, we have to lose it? Like, did he actually, I don't think he actually, I think it was kind of a metaphor, you know. Did he, did he actually call us to, to forgive not seven times, but 70 times seven? Like, he... He doesn't, I, Jesus doesn't want me to actually forgive this person. Like, they were pretty awful. Like, no, I mean, want, forgive these people, but he doesn't actually, he didn't actually mean that he wants me to forgive this person. He, does, he doesn't want me to, to actually love my enemies. That's kind of a concept at the time, a metaphor. He doesn't actually call us to, to love our enemies and pray for them. To submit my requests and desires to God on behalf of my enemies, the people that have hurt me, the people that I hate, the people that make me angry, the people that I disagree with. Like, he didn't, he didn't mean that. Did he, did he mean that I'm supposed to call to, to love and to serve the poor? Did, did Jesus, did, did he mean what he said about divorce and sexuality and money and the poor and violence? Go read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Go read that and see how quickly your heart goes, I don't know about that. I follow Jesus, the stuff about love and it's hard and we got to tell people about Jesus and we got to pray and we got to read our Bibles, but I don't, I don't know about that. Go read the Sermon on the Mount and just see how quickly your heart says, I don't know about this, right? Now I'm not saying throw good scripture interpretation out the door. The good scripture interpretation is called hermeneutics. But when we look at the teachings of Jesus, it's so easy for our heart to say, I didn't really mean that. My friends, listen, the lies of Satan are most potent, not when a non-believing culture lives like a non-believing culture and doesn't believe things about Christianity that we think we should. That's not when the lies of Satan are most potent. But when Christians are subtly convinced that somehow they can be Christians without knowing or following Jesus. That is when the lies of Satan are most potent. When, when, a whole, when a whole generation of followers of Jesus are like, he didn't really mean he wants us to do anything. And we end up with a Christianized skepticism 
where we follow Jesus, but we never talk to him. We never sacrifice for the kingdom. We never know what he actually says. We ignore his teachings in our hearts. We don't take seriously who he is or what he taught. Why? Because we believe a lie that God really say. And I think if I'm honest with my own heart, my own self is prepared for this and wrestled with this, I think the reason that we struggle to hold the God's truth to his teachings, to the life he calls us to is because at the heart, we struggle to believe that he's actually good. When Satan tempts Adam and Eve, he says, did God really say what is stirred? Is they're like, wait, is he holding out on us? Is there, is there something that he didn't tell us? Oh man, he would have let us know about this, right? And he didn't. This attitude, this deception calls into God's character and his nature. I want, I want you to consider a few things and you can write it down this way, that, that we become skeptical of God's truth, but we become skeptical of God's goodness. I want you to think about this. The, the scriptures are full of proclamations about God's goodness that point to his goodness, right? Look at a couple of the Psalms. Psalm 23, you know this one. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. It says, I remain confident of this, that I will see the what? The goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The psalmist writes, answer me, O Lord, out of the goodness of your love, of, in your great mercy, uh, turn to me. That the scriptures proclaim that God is good, right? We see that, right? We see that the scriptures show us that, that God is the one who decides what is good, right? That God, when God creates everything, he makes, he makes day and night and man and plants and animals and cats and dogs and all this stuff. And he says it was good. That he declares these things good, right? Think about this, that in the scriptures that this is so important for today, that points to the fact that God in and of himself is the definition of what is good. Jesus, in, in the book of Luke, this, uh, someone comes up to Jesus and, and they say, oh, that's the wrong thing. Don't look there yet. But they come up to, to Jesus and they, a certain young ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus comes back with a question. He doesn't in, instantly answer his question, but he answers. This guy comes and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? You can almost see the man stopping in the tracks, almost, almost pausing to think for himself. Why does he call him good teacher? And Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. That Jesus declaring that God in and of himself is the definition of good, that he is objectively good. And to say that God is good means that God always acts in accordance with what is right, true, and good. God doesn't act good as if there was an outside measuring stick based on our current emotions, culture, or grid to see if he's good or not, right? God in and of himself defines what is good. Think about this with salt, right? You don't taste something. You go, oh, this, this reminds me of salt. Like you don't eat like a, I don't know, a pretzel. and be like, this kind of reminds me of salt. No, it tastes like salt because it's salty. It is salt. God is good. If something is good, it's because it points to God. He is the definition of what is good. But what happens in the garden, we see this, we're going to look at this in a couple weeks, with the, the third lie is that, that Satan tempts him and says, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will be like God. You will have that knowledge of good and evil that God never wanted us to have, that is for him to have and us to trust and live in relationship with him. But now we have this knowledge of good and evil and we decide what is good. And so we put God to the test. We put him on our test and we decide if he is good or not based on our situation, right? Based on, based on our definitions, which are always changing. And if there's something that we can't see, that we can't understand, that we can't make sense of, we say, man, the God is not good. Matthew 7, 
towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Look at what Jesus says. If you then, who are evil? You, you all are evil. If you all are evil, you guys know how to good, give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? It's an interesting dialogue that Jesus has here in this teaching. You guys are evil, but you know how to good, give good gifts. How much more do you think your Father in heaven knows how to good, give good gifts? It uh, was Halloween. We were flying back from Turkey on Halloween. The day... Halloween was like 32 hours for us with the time. It was like the longest Halloween ever with the time change. But Halloween, I came back. It was exciting because our, our, we have, there's candy everywhere. There's candy all through the church left over from Fall Fest. There's candy all through my house. It's wonderful. And my little man Camden, he's going to be four this winter. He, we both got an affinity for gummy bears. Like we both are like just pounding gummy bears, right? And so we, we ate some gummy bears and we, in the morning he wakes up and he comes downstairs with me in my office and he comes down and he uh, keeps coming down. He's like, daddy, can we, I want, I want 15 gummy bears. And I'm like, dude, you can have one. He goes, maybe 14. <laughs> it's like, we have this candy conversation. So we, we go in, he, he's expecting me to bring him a bunch of gummy bears because we both love gummy bears. We've got good experience with gummy bears, right? But I come in and I give him an egg and he's just like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, this is, this is an egg. This is not gummy bears. I don't understand what's happening here, right? But why do I give him that? Why? Because I'm a good dad. Let's try to be, right? Like if I was just like, here, dude, eat 15 gummy bears, he would get sick and he would be, his day would be ruined, right? We'll have a gummy bear after we eat our egg. Why? Because I'm a, I'm a good dad, right? But it requires him to have faith and trust in his dad, right? That the, God's goodness requires us to have faith and trust that he is good. That to trust him in that. And, and for some of us, if we could just be honest, what we've seen and what we've experienced feels like we have every reason to doubt God's goodness. And we're like, man, what I've seen, what I've experienced, what what I've been through, what I've seen people go through, tell me that God is good? Come on, dude. We are in a broken, sinful, messed up world that doesn't just break our hearts, that breaks God's heart. And the gospel story is that Jesus is good. He has stepped into our story. He has stepped into this nonsense. He has taken our place and made a way to reconcile the world to himself in his plan of salvation that he is good. And faith is clinging to what we know to be true about our daddy, what's true about God, what's true about the hope of salvation that we have. That we cling to what is good. And if the lies of Satan breed skepticism in us, the truth of Jesus kindles faith in us. That Jesus claims that he is the way, that he is the truth, and that he is the life. It's the claim that Jesus makes. It's what he says about himself. Not a way, not a truth. He's the way, the truth, the life. And he also says that if you hold to his teachings, you will know the truth. You will know him, and the truth will set you free. That faith, David Tackle says in his book, is trusting that what God says is true, real, and for our good. That faith is actively, not just mentally agreeing with, but stepping into the fact that God is good. The Adam and Eve, when they were deceived, when they were, when the question of God's goodness came up, that they turned, they didn't step and say, but we know God. They said, I'm not sure, and kept him at arm's length, right? And it's the call on our lives 
the way is the way that we lean into God's goodness in faith. Then that faith is fanned into flames as we saturate ourselves in the truth of Jesus. Now these words, if we're just honest, like God's goodness and, and faith in God can feel churchy and feel kind of vague, but I want maybe to ask yourself and think about this for a second. Think about someone in your life that, that you have faith in. Why do you have faith in them? Why is that? Why, why, so, someone in your life that you trust, why do you trust them? It's, it probably has to do with multiple things. Their character, right? That they show up when they say they're going to show up. They come through when they say they're going to come through. That, that even in the midst of all kinds of things, that they're, they're present, right? And in, in some regard, we, we trust someone because we have a history with them. We've walked with them. That we've gone through things with them. That we have relationship with them. We know them over the long haul. As, as, we, as we struggle with this, this, this breeding of skepticism of keeping God at arm's length and kind of this, this lie in our hearts that did God, did he really say? Did he really mean as we struggle, as we struggle to believe that God is good, as we struggle to trust that, I want to ask you this question. Do you really know Jesus? I grew up evangelical church my whole life, and all we, you know, talk about is this personal relationship with Jesus. But as we talk about a personal relationship with Jesus, do we just agree with a statement of beliefs and just some, some kind of church activities and things, or do we know Jesus? I'm not asking if you prayed a prayer, but sometimes I'm, I'm afraid that we, we, especially my culture, we can, or my, my generation, we can deconstruct, we can walk away from, we can kind of keep it arm's length and believe a belief system instead of actually, actually walked with Jesus. That we oftentimes, whether it's actively or passively, we can walk away from someone that we never actually knew. That we just kind of agreed with kind of who they were a little bit in our minds. We've referenced this several times, this study that Barna did, where they talk about this 10% of kids in my generation who grew up in church are resilient disciples that, that believe in God's word and believe what he's called us to and actually want us to transform their lives and the world around them. It calls resilient disciples. And in this, it says one of, one of, the, one of the, the pillars of these resilient disciples that they looked at were this, was their identity came from an intimacy with Jesus. And some of the, the phrases that, that these, these resilient disciples said in their studies was, was these. And I, just, I, I want you to just ask yourself if, he, if these resonate with you. It says, really, resilient disciples would say, living in a relationship with Jesus is the only way I find my fulfillment in life. They'd say, my relationship with Jesus brings me deep joy and satisfaction. It said, following Jesus shapes my whole life, my body, my mind, my heart, my soul, my whole being. You know, I forget, maybe it was a song or something, I don't remember, but I would encourage you, in your time with Jesus, just to sit in the stillness, just sit quietly, just sit at the feet of Jesus, and just say, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. Have, we, have you walked with Jesus? Do we know Jesus? Because faith comes from trusting a person that we know. You know Jesus. Because for many of us, whether it's active or passive, our relationship with Jesus is always at an arm's length. 
We're always questioning, always side-eyeing, always smiling and nodding, but, not, but knowing that we are going to do our own thing. Faith, faith is a catch-22. Faith is a paradox. Because for many of us, we stay with this, the lie in our hearts that breeds, breeds this question of, is God good? Did he really say, does he really want us to? Does he really mean, is this really the right way to live? Is this really going to lead to life and life abundant? Is Jesus the way? Is he the truth? Is he the life? That we hold Jesus as an arm's length. And it's almost like we have this standoff going our whole lives and we're just waiting for something to happen. Then we'll trust you. Then we'll, then we'll step into something. Then, then we'll, we'll start this relationship with you. Then, then I'll do what you've called me to do. Then I'll join community. Then I'll give. Then I'll serve. Then I'll die to myself. Then I'll step into these relationships. Then I'll follow the moral imperatives that you call me to live in light of. And we kind of are always kind of waiting, but the paradox of faith, what trust is, is that I have to take the step into this thing. It makes me think of these things. You ever seen these? Chinese finger traps. I was going to order one, but I had to order 15 of them for 10 bucks and I needed one. Chinese finger trap. You put your fingers in this thing and as long as you pull away, you're just stuck. You're stuck. As long as you pull your finger, you can't get out. And oftentimes, that's where we're at. We're in the standoff with Jesus. Did you really say, do you really want me to do this? Is this what you're really calling me to? You really want me to step into it? And we're pulling away. And what faith does is it requires us to move towards something. Like if you, every relationship in your life, there's no intimacy apart from trust. We have to step into it. But I'm not sure if God, maybe he's not. What if this doesn't work? What if there's a better way to live? What if this doesn't give me the happiness I want? That we are required to step into faith. Hebrews 11. That we have to step in. The skepticism is always standing at arm's length. But faith and, faith and trust is this active decision to step into relationship. That there is no intimacy apart from that. That we know Jesus, we experience his goodness and his joy in a deep level as we step into this relationship time and time. But it didn't feel right right away or I didn't feel the way I wanted to, but I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust that he's good. I'm going to move towards him. I'm going to believe that he is who he says he is and I'm going to trust him. You go find someone who's been following Jesus for a long time. They will have tons of stories about where they've been let down, about where they've been hurt, about what they've been unsure of. But for someone who's actually walked with Jesus through loss, through their own sin, through their own uncertainty, through long desert seasons, through joys and triumphs, you hear these stories of faith, but the only way we get those stories of faith is to step into it. The story of scripture, my friends, is not a, just sit here, let's watch the video, and then we'll evaluate. Should we do this? Sure, let's do it now. I'm not saying check your brain, you ignore that stuff, and it's just completely blind. I am not saying that. There is so much, I would love to have a conversation with you about that. There is so much uh, just resources now to, to look at the practical aspects of faith, to doubt our doubts and question our own world that we're in. But at the end of the day, when you get to the end of the book, the end of the test, the end of the conversation, it's faith. From, from Genesis to Revelation, all the men and women, go read Hebrews 11. It's one of the best passages. All through the story, it's faith. It's faith to take God at his word, to trust that he is good. That did God really say? No, what he actually said was this. I'm going to believe that he's good. I'm going to trust that it's true. And I'm going to follow him. At the end of the day, it's faith.
that I gotta take, he wants me to live in community with people. I, it, it's, it takes faith to move in, to live this, this life of faith with other people. We don't live it by ourselves. It takes faith to do this with other people because with other people comes hurt and annoyance and inconvenience, but it takes faith to step into the community. It takes, it takes faith to follow financially, sacrificially what Jesus calls us to, to give of ourselves, to lay down our lives. It takes faith. In our time, and our time is so precious, and there's so much we want to do with it, it takes faith to step into sacrificing, giving our time to Christ. It takes faith to pursue the relationships that he calls us. It takes faith to reorient our lives around the habits and the practices of Christ, even when we feel like we're not getting an instant return on investment. It takes faith. Look at this. If, if Satan breeds lies at play to our flesh that get normalized in the world, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life that leads us not to follow our flesh, but to walk in the Spirit, to walk in the light of the reality of His Spirit guiding us day by day, that we, we, we believe the truth of Jesus to walk in the Spirit. And as we do that, as we follow Jesus, as we sit at His feet in prayer, and as we soak ourselves in His Word, and as we stay in step with the Spirit, listening to the voice of God in my relationships, and in my decisions, and in my nine-to-five, and in my mind, and in my attitudes, as I keep in step with the Spirit, that I become a participant in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Jesus, in the kingdom that He is bringing here and now on earth, and this kingdom is under the authority of Christ. That our hope as we go through uh, these next couple lies is that we, we would be able to identify the lie. What in my heart is breeding skepticism towards God good, God's goodness and his truth? I'm not saying this all is going to flush out on paper and be super easy. But we as a people are going to trust that Jesus is the way, truth, and life. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we're thankful that you're good. Remind our hearts of your goodness. Remind our hearts that you are good and you are the definition of what is good and true. That we, as we sing, as we gather together, as we open your word, remind us of what is true. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to identify the lies that Satan is, is, is stirring in our hearts. That we are so prone, Jesus, to keep you at arm's length and to question, did you really say, did you really mean, is that actually what you want me to do and have this attitude? But I pray that the attitude of our heart would be humble, would be that of, that, that we would receive from you your goodness and your mercy and your grace. I pray you'd help us in these things, Jesus. It's because of Christ we pray.